Hello and welcome to worship again here at First Christian Church. I'm really glad you're with us today. It's been my privilege to be part of the pastoral team here at the church since 1994. When Leslie and I first arrived in town, I was one class shy of a Master of Divinity degree. Lincoln Christian University gave me the opportunity to finish my degree in their school setting. Don Green, who was teaching church administration at the time, said, hey, come on up, come on up to Lincoln and we'll help you finish that degree. And up, off I went. I recall the class started at eight o'clock every Wednesday morning for a whole semester. Don challenged me in that class to think about this. What church administrative principles do you need to put in play? What leadership principles do you need to put in play today at First Christian Church Decatur that will carry the congregation for many years to come? Some of the principles and some of the ideas that were formatted and, and begun in that class are still in play in the life of our church today. Don is no stranger to First Christian Church very glad that he is with us today to bring us God's thoughts. Those thoughts of 1994 were God's thoughts for us then. I believe what we'll hear today are God's thoughts for us today from Don Green. So since 1994, Don has moved from being teaching in the seminary, a church administration class. He moved to a number of different positions and a year or so ago was named president of the university and the seminary, and uh, we have a long-standing relationship with him. He has repeatedly spoken into the life of our church when the leadership teams have called him and said, hey, give us some ad advice on this matter or some ideas, and, uh, but it's really good to have him share the pulpit today. Would you welcome Don Green to the, to the uh, stage, please? Thank you, Pastor Wayne. It is a real delight to be with you, to be able to worship with you here at First Christian Church. It gives me an opportunity on behalf of Lincoln Christian University to say thank you, First Christian Church, for your partnership with us in ministry. It is just exciting to see all that God is doing in you and through you and around you as He's out ahead of you and as you're staying in step with Him. And uh, it's our blessing to have you as a partner congregation because of students that you send to us prayers that you offer on our behalf, financial support that comes uh, to our ministry, uh, but also you provide a place for our interns uh, to serve, and our product, the staff and others who are part of this church that are Lincoln alumni, we're proud of that product. We really are, but we couldn't do it if it were not for churches like you, so thank you. Uh, first Christian. But my real reason for being here today is not to talk about Lincoln Christian University, though I could spend the time doing that, is to preach for you, and it's to uh, share one of those God thoughts with you. I was intrigued when uh, that series of sermons was announced that we were going to have a whole month of conversation around God thoughts, because Isaiah 55 verse 8 is the place where the Lord declares uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. That's a wonderful reminder to us. These God thoughts come in so many places, so many of them are found in Scripture. We're, we're going to dig into one of them this morning from the 13th chapter of Acts. So if you'd like to have your Bibles ready and turn to that in the Pew Bible, that's page 1,679. Uh, we're going to look at that passage in just a moment. But, but just a week or so ago, I was reminded of, of one of those moments where a God thought uh, really served a, a significant purpose in my life. Uh, the most recent uh, examples of terrorism and tragedy and all this going on in our culture reminded me of uh, right after 9-11, I discovered 
Psalm 11, a God thought. I was to prepare some remarks to speak to our seminary community the following day, and it was in Psalm 11, verse 3, that I read these words. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Some translate that, when the foundations are being destroyed, what is the righteous one doing? Because it makes you wonder, where's God in the midst of all this? What's he doing? But before there's an answer to the question, the psalmist in verse 4 gives us this wonderful God thought. He simply makes the affirmation, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Aren't you glad? that we serve a Lord that is still in control when everything else seems like it's out of control? And aren't you glad that our faith, our confidence, our hope does not depend on who is in the White House or the State House, but our faith and our confidence is in a God who still reigns? Well, these God thoughts come in unanticipated ways and at unexpected times. I remember when I opened up my daily newspaper one morning, turned to the obituaries, and there in big, bold print was my name, Donald Green. Well, obviously, it was a different Donald Green who passed away, but it was enough to catch my attention and move me toward a God thought. I began to think that day of what it is I want to be remembered for. It was the day I began to think about what epitaph might they put on my tombstone. Or as um, a recent author um, communicated in, in a book, Road to Character, uh, David Brooks said, it's time to think not just about your resume virtues, but your eulogy virtues. What are those things that really matter? Not your achievements and things of success, but your real contributions. Well, I can tell you it would have something to do with my passion. When I was inaugurated as Lincoln's seventh president uh, in May a year ago, I announced to our campus community and to the churches of our uh, constituents that I, I'm just issuing a charge. And that charge was that I wanted to see us together advance the kingdom of God around the world, among the nations and among the generations. Because I'm convinced that is Christ's vision. Christ's vision for the world, his dream, his desire, his preferred end, the outcome for which he died. Christ's vision is to see the reign and rule of God come over the heart and life of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, of every nation and every generation. That is his vision. That's why early in the Gospel of Matthew, he announced that he was coming to preach the good news of the kingdom. And he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's why near the end of Matthew's Gospel, he makes this pronouncement in chapter 24 verse, 10, verse 14, this Gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. It's a vision that is consistent with the example of the Apostle Paul that's recorded in Acts chapter 28, the very end of the book, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And yet the question for us to wrestle with today is as Christians, as a church, as a Christian university, how do we help 
Jesus Christ accomplish his vision? What is our part in seeing his reign, his rule come over the heart and life of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl of every nation and every generation? I don't care what age you are. I don't care at what stage in life you are. You have been called to serve, to serve God's purpose. That brings me to my God thought. The God thought that I want to share with you that comes out of Acts chapter 13, I'm going to give it to you in a single sentence. Wayne, my philosophy of preaching is if you can't say it in one sentence, you probably can't say it in 30 minutes. But I also know that there are some people here who would say, well, just give me the sentence and that'll be enough. It doesn't work that way. You're going to get all 30 minutes. But the sentence is this. It has always been and still is the task of all God's people to serve God's timeless purpose in a timely manner among a temporal generation with eternal consequences. Now, the reason it's going to take me a little time is that that's a sentence that's packed with stuff. So we want to unpack it. I want to unpack it for you by reminding you of the text that's tucked away in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. It's one of Paul's sermons. It's a sermon he preached at Pisidian Antioch. It's a sermon in which he's rehearsing the history of God's people, but in a passing reference on his way to making his point, he uses a couple of phrases that are equally packed with perspective. In his message, Paul comes to his conclusion, and in verse 36, he's contrasting Jesus and David, and he does it like this. Look at verse 36 of Acts chapter 13. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. He's contrasting Jesus, who was crucified, who was buried, but who was raised again on the third day. His body did not decay. But David, like all others, he died. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But it's the way he summed up David's life that I find fascinating. It's, I think, appropriate to think about this as an epitaph on a tombstone. If they would say of me in my eulogy, he served God's purpose in his own generation, I'm telling you, life would be worth living. I hope they can say that about me. The legacy that we leave is a significant legacy because regardless of who we are, we're to stand in the stream of the faithful. We're to somehow navigate the change that's in this world of transition. And like David, we need to understand our call individually and collectively to serve God's purpose among a particular generation in a changing generational scene and a challenging cultural context. So let's consider for just a few moments, what does it mean to serve God's purpose? That word purpose sometimes is translated plan, sometimes it's translated will, but it's a word that is used 18 times in the New Testament. 
I wish we had time to look at all 18 times because they really are quite fascinating, but we're going to look at three or four of them. One of them is in Ephesians chapter 1. There in Ephesians 1, Paul talks about the universal nature of God's purpose. He writes in Ephesians 1 verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Did you catch it? God's universal purpose that everything, he's going to bring everything in heaven and earth together under one united head. He wants to unite in chapter 2 the Jews and the Gentiles into one family to break down the walls that are dividing us, the wall of hostility. He has brought peace. He's accomplished that in Jesus Christ, a universal purpose. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it's an eternal purpose. He says this, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's purpose is not only universal, it is also eternal. And his eternal purpose has something to do with the presence of the church in a community. I I think Paul would assume that if a church is in a community, it's going to impact that community. If it's in a culture, it's going to begin to transform that culture. But he's talking about something that is cosmic in proportion. He's talking about the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted purpose and story of God being made known through the church to the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers to put the very forces of hell on edge as they say, wow, look at the church being the church, God's eternal purpose. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, the word is used, and there it's a reference to an unchanging purpose. The Hebrew writer said because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. His purpose is unchanging. It is eternal. It is universal. It is a restoring purpose, a reconciling purpose, a redemptive purpose. And as we join God in this adventure that we call history, which is the unfolding of his story in the world, as we join him in that adventure, we do so within the context of a specific generation. And I want us to see the contrast. Think about generations. Generations are temporal. Generations are culturally significant. Generations are ever-changing. So how God's purpose is carried out in each generation is in some ways the same and in other ways different. And our part in that In some ways, it's the same for all of us, and in another sense, it's different for all of us. It's why at Lincoln Christian University, we invite our students and our faculty and staff to live your mission. It's individually and culturally and generationally and personally and geographically unique. Live your mission 
But you do that in order to fulfill God's mission, which is universal and unchanging and eternal. The more I study Scripture, the more convinced I am that God's heart is for all the nations and all the generations. There's a wonderful statement in Psalm 45, verse 17, that says this, I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Do you see the connection? As God's memory, as God's message, as God's word and plan is perpetuated from generation to generation to generation, more nations will join in the praise of God. There's a connection. But the book of Judges illustrates what happens when a nation forgets. It illustrates what happens when God's people lose their memory. There's an oft-repeated statement in the book of Judges. It goes like this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I guess we can take some comfort in knowing that ours is not the first generation to be faced with what we might call the challenge of moral relativism. <laughs> it was true back then. Where what's right for me may not be right for you. It's very clear to us that that stems in our culture from an absence of absolute truth. It's the product of a pluralistic perspective that says all truths are equal, all truth is relative. You can have truth for you that may not be truth for me. But if you want to understand how the story moves so quickly from Joshua's faithfulness to God to the nation of Israel's unfaithfulness, I want you to see a dreadful statement in Judges 2, verse 10. The historian said, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I guess that statement catches my attention because it's a reminder to me that the real generation gap is not a generation gap over generational differences or generational preferences. It's a generation gap between a generation that knew the Lord and a generation that did not know the Lord. And it happened in the span of just one generation. One of the principles that I taught way back then in 1994 in that church administration class was a leadership principle that I live by. Leaders don't fix blame. Leaders fix problems. <laughs> it doesn't matter how we got here. It matters how, that we never get here again. So let's fix the problem. But every once in a while, I play the blame game. And I do it when I insert myself back into that story of the book of Judges. One generation, that whole generation died and was gathered to their fathers, and another generation grew up that didn't know the Lord. Whose fault was that? Well, we might place the blame on the younger generation and say, why weren't they listening? Why didn't they learn? They should have paid attention. We tried to tell them. They just didn't get it. Or we might place some blame on the older generation and say, for whatever reason, the older generation didn't faithfully pass on the faith to the next generation. I'll tell you what, I've observed over my years of parenting and observing 
students at the university and the seminary, the matters of the faith that really are instilled deep within us are more caught than taught. It's not just that we teach them in lessons, but they see us living them in our lives. The principles that really last are those that are ingrained because they're modeled for us over a lifetime. For whatever reason, this is what happened in the book of Judges. They failed to do what Psalm 145 says a generation is supposed to do. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. So I want us to fast forward. I want us to fast forward to today and to wrestle a bit with the growing generation gap that is in America. According to the Pew Research Center, here's the quote, a third of adults under 30 have no religious affiliation, 32%, compared with just one in 10 who are 65 and older, 9%. They go on to say, and young adults today are much more likely to be nuns, unaffiliated than previous generations were at a similar stage in their lives. Not nuns, not the NUNs, the women who wear black habits in a Catholic tradition, but the N-O-N-E-S. Those who, when they're asked, what's your religious affiliation? A third of young adults under the age of 30 are going to check none. I have no religious affiliation. My generation, the 65 and older, one out of 10 would say that. Something's happened, even in our own country. Something's happened in the church. In his book, You Lost Me, David Kinneman publishes some of his research. He says, and I quote, more than 60% of young people who went to church as teens drop out after high school. More than 60%. Let me illustrate it for you. Statistics are really pretty close to this. Let's just say in this service this morning, there are three graduates from high school who've grown up here, been teens in the church here. So this fall, they go off to get a job, they go off to the university, they go off to trade school. One out of those three are going to remain faithful and walk in their faith. One of those three will walk away from the faith for a while and then come back. But one of those three will walk away from the faith and never come back. Church has a tremendous responsibility to raise up our children and our grandchildren and the youth in our midst to, as David Kinneman says it, help them understand what it means to be in the world but not of the world and to help them know how to engage culture in a healthy way. There's some serious long-term consequences. I asked Zach, our youth minister at Lincoln Christian Church, what counsel would he give youth leaders parents and others about how to help young people make it in our world today, he said, I probably would tell them rather than pointing a finger in their face when they do something wrong that you want to chew them out for, put an arm around their shoulder and say, man, I know life's tough, but we're going to get through this together. But what happened way back then in Israel's time could happen here and now. 
I, I say this wherever I go. It's not going to happen to First Christian Church because I know too much about your vision and your strategy and your ministry. But in lots of churches, this is exactly what will happen. I say it like this. Your church, like every church, is just one generation away from closing its doors. If you don't faithfully pass on the faith to the next generation, that's what's going to happen. So today, if today is a typical Sunday in America, today 70 churches will go out of business. 3,500 churches a year close their doors. So think about it. Someplace in America today, 70 churches will gather for their last prayers together and songs together and They'll hear their last sermon together and they'll leave the building in tears and they'll lock the doors of the building and this week those church buildings will be put on the real estate market. 70 churches a year. Or 70 churches a week. But God wants to reach all the nations and all the generations with his eternal, unchanging, universal truth. And that especially includes this millennial generation. I describe them like this. They're not just the single largest generation in all of history, but perhaps the single most educated group of people on the face of the earth. For them, diversity is normal. Eclectic is their favorite song genre. Homogeneity is suspect. There are more of them crammed in the Midwest right in our backyard than at any other point in our lifetime. But it doesn't matter where they are because they defy any geographical limitation. They are proficient in technologies and yet they are relentlessly relational. But they're weary of narcissistic hypersexuality, political rhetoric, family brokenness. And in the glow of computer monitors, they're Googling their questions late at night, searching for answers in all the wrong places, and it never dawns on them to think that a church might have something to say that's helpful to them. The point I want us to catch is this. Our mission field is not just across the ocean. It may be just around the corner or across the street, or maybe across the room. Professor John Castelline, who is now a distinguished professor after retiring from our seminary as professor of theology, made an observation one time that has stuck with me. He said, my fear about much of the American church is that much of the American church would spend literally tens of thousands of dollars to equip a missionary to learn the language and understand the customs so that missionary could go across the ocean and preach the gospel to a man that has a bone in his nose. But if it's a 15-year-old kid down the street that has a gold ring in his nose, that same church would write that kid off as a jerk and do nothing. <laughs> So who's more lost? A man across the ocean who has a bone in his nose that doesn't know Jesus? Or a kid in our community that has a gold ring in his nose that doesn't know Jesus? I could, I could almost tell you that if I were at Lincoln Christian Church this morning for our 815 service, something like this could have happened. I've seen it happen so frequently. There's a young man that comes into the service, usually a, a few minutes late. He comes in by himself. He's over six feet tall. He'll walk down the center aisle to about a third of the way down to the front, and he'll step into the service and sit next to his grandmother. But he looks like he's about six foot five because his hair is usually spiked, <laughs> like this. I'm envious of him. 
Not that if I had hair, I'd spike it, but just that I had that much hair. But I'm envious of him. But here's what I hear. I hear murmuring around me. I hear people saying, look at that guy. What's he doing here looking like that? And I'm thinking if I were his grandmother, I'd be saying, I am so glad to have my grandson in church with me. Because Christ's vision, he wants to see heaven populated with all kinds of people. Gray-haired people, some of us are on our way to being no-haired people, but also spiked-haired people and purple-haired people because he doesn't care about the color or condition of our hair. He cares about changing the condition of our hearts and he wants a family that's a growing family of all generations, of all the nations. God's purpose is grand. So how do we do that? Let's come back to our text. How is it Paul did it? Well, in Acts chapter 20, he's reminding the Ephesian elders of how he did it. Another place where he used this phrase, the plan of God, in Acts 20, he said to the elders of Ephesus, now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again, but therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will, the whole plan, the whole purpose of God. There's where Paul used that phrase. But it's in that same passage, he says, night and day, I never stopped warning you with tears. See, there's a difference between speaking the truth to someone with a gleam in our eye because we know we're right and speaking the truth to someone out of love with a tear in our eye. In Acts 13, what's Paul doing? How's he serving God's purpose in his generation like David did? He's preaching good news. He's announcing gospel. In fact, this is what he says in verse 32. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. There it is. There's the constant. There's the anchor. It's the gospel. It's what bridges the gulf across the nations and closes the gap between the generations. It's what every nation and every generation needs to hear. It's why Gabe Lyons, in his book, The Next Christians, how a new generation is restoring the faith, gives Christians a priority. And it's this. He says, the first thing is for the Christian to recover the gospel, to relearn and fall in love again with that historic, beautiful, redemptive, faithful, demanding, reconciling, all-powerful, restorative, atoning, grace-abounding, soul-quenching, spiritually fulfilling good news of God's love to restore the gospel, the whole gospel, the good news of God's love. We've somehow distorted it and turned it into all about rules and regulations and behaviors. I'm absolutely convinced that there's a challenge before the younger generation. I was actually uh, privileged a year ago, just this next week, to be in St. Charles, Missouri with my wife celebrating our wedding anniversary and to worship with the Harvester Christian Church. And we heard Nicomas Perez, one of our seminary graduates, the student minister, preach that morning. It was all about uh, 
the next generation of leaders. His point was that oftentimes we look at the next generation as behaviors to be managed or, or a problem to be fixed rather than the successors to our leadership. And he was cautioning about what we do as one generation to the next. And so his advice to the older generation was to mentor the next generation well. But then he turned to his students and he said, but I have a challenge to you who are in the younger generation. And he said it like this, you will be tempted more than any other generation before you to change the gospel. So he said, here's my message to you. Please improve on our methods. You can do it better than we did. But don't mess with our message. And he said, you're going to be tempted to. I've said this to our students. You're going to be tempted to preach a gospel of forgiveness without repentance, of love without obedience, a gospel of grace without truth, a gospel of Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. And it's the whole gospel that's so needed by all. But the need for kingdom workers was illustrated as well by the Joshua Project's, project's numbers that there are still 6,900 people groups in the world that are unreached. 1,967 of them don't have a single verse of Scripture in their own language. 339 of those people groups are in China. It's why at Lincoln Christian University we have a China Institute for students to come and spend a year in English Language Academy. And then to engage in one of our academic programs so they can go back to China and change their country. It's why I'm so convinced that the work before us is so important. Here's a God thought for you. Ours is an unfinished task. Ours is an unfulfilled mission. But ours is an unprecedented opportunity because ours is an awesome God. May we be inspired to serve God's purpose in our own generation by this doxology of praise that came from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.